First Peter chapter 3 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoer, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You know, earlier when we were worshiping and we sang the song and we talked about the way of the Lord and that your way is better, your plan is better, your purpose is better, we can philosophically or intellectually embrace that notion, but the reality is, what if that way is the way of submission or the way of suffering? Now, I want to remind you about something, and that is that by and large, human beings are curious. Saved people and unsaved alike, they're curious. They're curious about God. They're curious about life. They're curious about death. Some are even curious about Christianity. And so why are they curious about Christianity? Because they ask and they answer the question, does Christianity hold the answers that I'm looking for? The answer to the problem of my sin. The answer to the problem of how I can have a right relationship with God. The answer to the question of, does my life have meaning? The answer to the question of, where will I go when I die? And the Apostle Peter has brought up themes and questions about salvation in chapter 1 verses 3 through 8, about the scripture in chapter 1 verses 9 through 12, about sanctification in verses 13 through 25, about separation in chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, submission in verse 13, all the way to chapter 3 verse 13. And now Peter is going to devote a great deal of time to the issue of suffering, beginning in verse 14, continuing to the end of the chapter, beginning in chapter 4, all the way through 19. And so imagine sanctification, separation, submission, suffering. There's reasons why he's bringing up these important issues. And over and over again, I've reminded you that the audience that Peter is writing to are hurting people. And remember, suffering has many sources. The Bible teaches that suffering sometimes finds its source in Satan. In Job chapter 1 and 2, Luke chapter 13 verses 15 and 16, Acts chapter 10 verse 38. Suffering can also find its source in ungodly people in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 14. This world's broken system that stands in opposition to God, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 8. Suffering can even be found in the fact that our own fallen nature leads us astray that according to Romans chapter 7 verses 14 through 23 sometimes the source of suffering is found in selfish and carnal Christians who for whatever reason refuse to submit to the word of God and the spirit of God 
That according to Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. And with so many sources of suffering, it shouldn't shock us and it shouldn't surprise us that suffering is something that happens. But oddly enough, in all of the sources that I gave you, you'll notice that none of the sources include God. God isn't the source of suffering. God is the source of salvation. God has sent Jesus Christ both to submit and suffer on our behalf. And in verse 14, just I want to remind you that we take a quick look back where it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. Remember the message of suffering for righteousness sake is so utterly foreign in our culture and so utterly foreign in our society that our first and foremost premise when we come to the issue of suffering is how do I get out of it? How do I avoid it? How do I make sure it's not a part of my life or a part of my family's life? Peter gives several qualifications. He says make sure that you suffer for the right reason. For righteousness sake. And then he says, make sure that you have the right reaction. You are blessed. Make sure that you have the right resolve. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Peter reminds the Christian that suffering occurs. But not always for the reasons that you might suspect. He also reminds the reader, when you suffer, don't panic and don't worry. But that's typically exactly the first response. When we find ourselves in circumstances that we don't want to be in, with the loss of a job or the diagnosis of a disease, in the book of Acts, you'll remember that Peter was arrested and imprisoned and he fully expected to meet the same fate as James. James, by the way, when he was arrested in the book of Acts, he is taken out and he's executed. Peter is arrested and on the night before his execution, he's released by an angel according to Acts chapter 12 verse 6. One of the great mysteries in the Bible is why was James killed and why was Peter released? And make no mistake about it, Peter had taken a journey from cowardice and terror to bravery and confident belief because when we find him on the night before he's to be executed, he's sleeping like a baby. Haven't you ever wondered why? I think that the reason is, of course, because he has come to a confident place in his own heart and in his own life that no matter what is happening to him, that Jesus is in charge. The famous preacher Alexander McLaren wrote, only he who can say, the Lord is the strength of my life, can go on to say, of whom shall I be afraid? When Peter puts ink to pen in his not too distant future, he will become Nero's prisoner. But as William Gurnall points out, quote, but Peter was much more God's, but Nero was much more God's prisoner. In other words, he becomes the prisoner of Nero, but make no mistake about it, <laughs> Nero's the one who's really trapped. 
He's the real one who's in bondage. G.K. Chesterton wrote, Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would, number one, be completely fearless. Number two, absurdly happy. And number three, in constant trouble. Is that a picture of your life? Fearless, happy, in trouble. (laughs) We sang it earlier. On the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. That's the idea. Peter offers assurance to the believer in Jesus. Stand fast for Jesus. Be bold. No matter how ferocious the persecution. No matter how terrible the pain. No matter how intense the suffering. For some of us, it's mild. Some of us, it, it's something as simple as mocking ridicule. It's being dismissive of your ideas. It's hating your company. For some, it's being overlooked, bypassed, cut off, abused, beaten, imprisoned. And perhaps like your brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, your goods are confiscated, your family is separated, your country is decimated. But Peter says, make sure that you do what's right and good in verses 13 and 14. Peter says, set your heart on the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that he gives you in verse 15. Make sure you're ready and willing and able to deliver an answer, it says in verses 16 and 17. Make sure your answer includes the hope of salvation inside of your heart. Make sure your conscience is clean, it says says in verses 16 and 17. And so on the road marked with suffering, be prepared, be equipped, be ready. Look what it says in verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now think carefully. If we're called to suffer, be bold, it says in verse 14. If we're called to suffer, it says, believe in verse 15. Now, translations include, but sanctify the Lord God or reverence Christ as Lord or sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart. In other words, remember the heart is the place considered to be the place where deep emotions reside. This would be the place where anxiety and depression and fear would reside. And so do you want to know the antidote for anxiety and depression and fear? Peter shifts the focus of what can harm you to what can make you whole. What can make me whole again? You know the song. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you whole? Here is the idea. The focus isn't on what can harm you, but what can what can make you whole. He draws his, his, 
his statement from Isaiah for comfort and confidence. You may read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, but Peter himself is quoting the scripture in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. It says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. In other words, who is it that can harm you? These people may harm you. And when the harm comes, make sure that you draw a circle around your heart and fill that circle with the presence of the Lord. So what will you do when you're called upon the Lord to suffer? He says, be prepared. And the expression sanctify, again, means to set aside or set apart. And the thing that you set aside or the thing that you set apart is your own heart. That's the idea. We might say, like I said, draw a circle inside of your heart. Then fill that circle with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the idea. Whatever else it means to sanctify God in your heart, it has to mean that you acknowledge Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of the suffering. And that's the key. That's the key. If you miss that, you've missed everything. Because if you do not recognize, if you do not recognize, if you fail to recognize that the circumstance that you find yourself in is in fact a part of God's ordained plan and purpose, you're not going to have the resources necessary in order for you to go forward. Peter had the privilege of witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop. Peter saw the resurrected Jesus. Peter watched Jesus go into heaven. Once you know Jesus, once you love Jesus, once you trust Jesus, terror and fear can no longer find room inside of your heart. So what does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts? It must mean in part that you acknowledge Jesus in the midst of the suffering. And it also must mean in part that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is occupying your heart. Your possessions. Everything that you're subject to. Your treasure is in him, your life, your circumstance, your health, your family, your claims, your possessions, everything, everything, everything is ultimately, ultimately, ultimately submitted to him. Your future isn't on the earth. Your future is in heaven. You judge the teaching of Christ and the wisdom of God to be superior to the sum and the substance of everything that human beings can come up with. You are obedient to him both in your conscience and your conduct you set aside your agenda and you embrace his service you know what that means it means you say hey lord if you're redirecting me in this particular area then you're redirecting me you see We're to praise the Lord. We're to honor him. We're to love him and serve him. And the fear of man will melt like wax. And perhaps no better example in the New Testament is Stephen, 
of a person who sanctifies Jesus in his heart. You'll remember that after giving an eloquent and penetrating defense of Jesus as the Messiah before the Jewish Sanhedrin, he was taken by an angry mob. The story is found in Acts chapter 7, verse 54 and 60. After telling these people the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of their own history, the reality of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ, according to the statements, they see the reflection of the glory of God on the face of Peter. It's interesting to me. It says, but when those men looked into Stephen's eyes, they didn't see their own hatred or bitterness, but a reflection of the Savior's grace and love. Think about that for just a moment. Here is a savage attack, undeserved. Stephen could have died bitter, or he could have died angry, or he could have died terrified. But he utters a prayer of forgiveness and hope for the killers who condemn him. The killers place their robe at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Stephen calls out to the Lord and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, the Bible says, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And it says, and having said this, he fell asleep. Do you understand what's happening? Stephen was willing to sanctify the Lord God in his heart. Stephen was willing to say, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control. Jesus is in charge and in control. Listen carefully of the unwanted, unfair, unpleasant circumstances. Do you get that? Stephen's death and testimony would leave a lasting impression upon a young man's heart. And that testimony would not go unnoticed. No wonder Peter would write at the end of verse 15, and always, and always, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Look what Peter's doing. He says, is the road marked with suffering? Is there pain in the offering? He says, be bold, be leave. Be prepared to speak about your own experience. In other words, the Lord God occupies our heart and the word of God occupies our mind. Let me help you with the context. Remember, be ready to give a defense to everyone. Remember, 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 he's writing to a group of Christians who are living under the ever-present shadow of persecution. They're living under the ever-present shadow of suffering. They're living under the ever-present shadow of imminent arrest and torture and death. As a matter of fact, many of them 
were already hated. Many of them were already slandered. Many of them had already been driven from their home. Many of them were already hated by the government. Many of them had already lost their job. Many of them had already been abandoned by their spouse or by their family. And many of them witnessed the torture and execution of their family and friends. That's who he's writing to. By the way, in the decades that followed this letter, so much fuel would stoke the fires of hatred and fear. And some would face persecution with courage and confidence in the Lord Jesus. And some would not. Do you realize that one of the great catastrophes that happened in the early church was how the church was to deal with the people who were faithful and the people who were unfaithful, the people who affirmed their faith and the people who denied their faith, the people who cracked under the pain and the pressure and the suffering, and they cracked under the pain and the pressure and the suffering, and the church had to figure out a way to forgive them and restore them back to fellowship. But many more faced persecution with courage and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many more refused to pinch the salt to the image of Nero. That is, offer him worship and praise. What gave Christians the ability to answer their persecutors and accusers? What gave Christians the courage to provide an unmistakable testimony to accusers and persecutors? It's because they actually believe the words that Peter are giving here. Always be ready. You may read that passage and just simply skip the word always. We're always to be ready to speak about Jesus. We're ready. We're prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. Neighbors will ask. Critics will ask. Skeptics will ask. Judges will ask. Family will ask. And the questions are going to take one of two forms. Curious or hostile? And by the way, if you can't give an answer when people are simply curious, what will you do when the question is hostile? By the way, the expression, give a defense, has also been translated, give an answer. The word is apologia. Now, some of you may hear that word and you hear the word apology, but that's not the meaning of the word. Even though apology is somewhat linked to that word, apologia means a reasoned defense. And it was used to describe the response to an accusation. The word logia is word and a is what's known as the negative. And so it came to mean to describe a response to an accusation. And that's the way it's used in the New Testament in Acts chapter 22, verse 1. In Acts chapter 25, verse 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. William Barclay explains it, quote, must be reasonable. It is a logos that the Christian must give. And a logos, that means a word, is a reasonable and intelligent statement of a position. By the way, Christians are to be intellectually willing to ask and answer questions that are difficult. Now, when people ask me, 
do you believe that there's a God? And I go, I can give you a cosmological reason. I can give you a teleological reason. I can give you an ontological reason. Do you know how many people have come into the, the kingdom because I gave them an ontological, teleological, or cosmological argument for the existence of God? Zero. But do you know how many people have come when I go, you ask me if I believe in a God. I, I hate to just be so obvious, but just look around you. What do you see? Stuff. Where do you think all this stuff came from? Well, according to Stephen Hawking this last week, it came out of nothing. Now, I'm here to tell you Stephen Hawking is way smarter than me. But even I'm not so stupid as to believe that nothing becomes something. Especially if nothing was nothing forever. Does nothing that has always been nothing stay nothing? How many has that been your experience? Nothing. And you didn't even have to grow up in the time that I grew up in and, and sing the song. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You got to have something. Great song and it's good philosophy. Creation and conscience is the arguments that have been given in every single age. Always be ready. Barclay says it must be reasonable. It's a logos. It's a reasonable and intelligent, intelligent statement of a position. Now think, to do so, we must know what we believe. We must have it thought out. We must be able to state it intelligently and intelligibly. <laughs> Barclay says, quote, His defense must be given with gentleness. The case for Christianity must be given with winsomeness and with love. Men may be wooed into the Christian faith when they can't be bullied into it. His defense must be given with reverence. That is to say, any argument in which the Christian is involved must be carried out in a tone which God can hear with joy in any presentation of the Christian case and in any argument for the Christian faith. The accent should be the accent of love. That's what he says. And I think he's right. So instead of getting all upset when your atheistic friend says to you, I'm an atheist, and it's a challenge, it's a dare to you. They put their hands on their hips and they say, I'm an atheist. Oh. The right response for you is to say, hey, that's great. That's great. Are you an intellectual atheist or are you an emotional atheist? What do you mean? Well, I mean... Is this your position because it's your deeply held philosophical position after much thought? Or do you hold that position emotionally because the thought of a God scares the heebie-jeebies out of you? <laughs> I'm an intellectual atheist. Okay, let's just make sure we define our terms. Let's make sure we understand the God that you don't believe in. Is the God that you don't believe in the one that's mentioned in the Bible? The, the self-existent God? The self-existent God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-grace, all-love, all-beauty, all-knowledge, personal and knowable. Is that the God that you don't believe in? Yeah, that's the God I don't believe in. Okay, now let's make sure we understand our terms. Now, you said you're an atheist, and clearly because you're an atheist, you don't believe you're God, right? Of course I'm not God. 
So you don't know everything about everything and you don't have access to all information. That's correct. And then I say, what would you be willing to accept as evidence that there is a God? Hmm. Hmm. And then they begin to go through the evidences in their own mind and they begin to think, well, if God actually appears to me, it might be an alien like Star Trek pretending to be God, but not really God. And then they go through a list of evidences and then they begin to disqualify whatever evidences they come up with. And whatever evidences they come up with, they usually typically end the conversation with, I don't know. Wait a minute, you just told me you're an intellectual atheist and now you've moved from atheism to agnosticism. Which is it? Are you an atheist or are you an agnostic? Because remember, a true intellectual atheist will understand something that because they don't know everything about everything and because they're not the God who knows everything about everything and because they don't have access to all knowledge and all information and all understanding, there may be something somewhere that would cause them to move from the place of absolute skepticism to thoughtful agnosticism and come to the conclusion that I don't know. But you have to be ready to give an answer. It may mean formal charges or informal accusations. That's the idea. Christians claim that Jesus is unique in history. Christians claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Christians claim that creation is the unique act of a personal God. Christians claim the Bible is a unique book. Christians claim on several factors, not least of which is that the Bible contains prophecies written hundreds, even thousands of years in advance that came specifically true. And your moment may only come once. But seldom will you have more opportunity to share about God than when you're suffering. It's when you're in the hospital bed and you've been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And your eyes are bright and your smile is bright. And they ask you the question, the question that they're afraid to ask themselves. Aren't you afraid to die? Don't you wonder what's going to happen to you when you die? Francis Bacon wrote, the contemplation of things as they are without substitution or imposture, without error or confusion, is in itself a nobler thing than a whole harvest of invention." What Bacon is basically saying is that there's way more profit in talking about what is real and what is true and what is right than man's useless speculations. And if anyone knows the answer to what really happens when you die, you would think that it would be from a person who's actually risen from the dead. But what happens when you're suffering is unexpected or unwelcome or unwanted. You see, it's one thing to talk about these questions in the setting of a church or in the setting of a Bible study, but the question becomes way more poignant when you're doing what you would normally do on any given day and all of a sudden your world is upside down 
and someone sticks a knife to your throat or a gun to your head and says, do you believe in God? In our little community, it's not far-fetched. That the safest place where you can go is supposed to be school. And in the safest place where you're supposed to go and where you're supposed to enter into dialogue about deeply held convictions, it's going to be very, very different if somebody sticks a gun to your head and says, do you believe in God? You know, after the Columbine shooting, I had the opportunity to talk with one of the girls whose mother goes to our church. Her name was Val Schnur. And uh, we had a conversation about what was going on under that library table. And she was right next to Lauren Townsend. And Lauren was shot with, with a gun. And then this particular person asked her, do you believe in God? And Val Schnur said, yes, I do. And he, he shot her. Uh, with a shotgun, 11 pellets went under the left side of her arm. It exited on the right side, and she was still alive. She survived the shooting, and she was breathing, and she was breathing hard. And the gunman came back to her again and said, do you believe in God? And you know what she said to me? She said, in my heart, I thought, if I say yes again, He's going to shoot me again. So what do you say? What do you say? How is just simply saying, no, I don't, in order to avoid getting shot, does that seem like such a bad thing? Does that seem like such a terrible thing? Does that seem like such an awful thing? But then she said to me, but you know what? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I had to tell him the truth. I had to tell him the truth that there's a real God. I said, yes, I do. But he went to the next person. You see, we give a reason. We give a testimony. We give a quiet, reverent response to the people who ask. Because Val Schnur knew that she was going to wake up in heaven or she was going to wake up tomorrow. And in verse 16, look what it says. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. He says, be blameless. The chances are you won't be able to stop people from criticizing you. The chances are people are going to make fun of you. People are going to ridicule you. People are going to criticize you. You probably will not stop people from slandering you. But you know what you can stop doing? You can stop selling them ammunition. As long as you do what is right, the accusations will sound hollow and empty and will only wind up embarrassing your critics. So how many people get in trouble because they pray for their family, because they pray for their friends, because they pray for their neighbors? What are the chances of getting in trouble because you actually serve in a volunteer capacity in homeless shelters or an aid center or a food closet? What does it mean to have a good conscience? Having a good conscience, I'm going to tell you what I think it means. I think it means personal integrity before God alone. 
And remember what that word integrity means. It's wholesomeness or wholeness or wellness. You see, the most important person who knows the truth about your heart doesn't have to be your husband and it doesn't have to be your wife and it doesn't have to be the people you, you go to school with and it doesn't have to be the people that you work with. The most important person who knows the truth about you has to be God. And unbelievers have a conscience. Unbelievers are guided and motivated. Even they are guided and motivated by a conscience. So what is the difference between a Christian conscience and an unbelieving conscience? It's the source of who informs that conscience. It's the source that informs that conscience. And for the believer, your conscience is transformed by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, changed by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. The Holy Spirit's job is to guide you and to inform you. And don't ignore your conscience. If you want to have a clear conscience, don't ignore your conscience. Don't sear your conscience. Avoid willful disobedience. If you disobey and sin, here's the right response. Confess your sin. And he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There can be a restoration of your conscience. Cultivate the ability to tell right from wrong and good from evil. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, this is the Jewish council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now that's how Paul began his speech when he was on trial for his life. The high priest, when he said those words, ordered Paul to be slapped in his face. And Paul, not always the apostle that you might think, said, What gives you the right to slap me, you whitewashed sepulcher? And then the guy hit him again and he said, How dare you talk to the high priest that way? And Paul goes, I had no idea it was the high priest. Which leads a lot of scholars to believe that he might have had a vision problem. So don't. Don't get all upset with yourself if you don't always say the right thing at the right time. In Acts chapter 24, verse 16, it says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. Those are the words that Paul used when he began his testimony before the cruel and treacherous procurator Felix. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he said, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Whether he's speaking in court, whether a watching world, Paul says, I want to make sure that my conscience is clean. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, it says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecy previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. You see, it's not good enough for you to just simply believe a certain thing. You need to be able to behave in such a way that your life really reflects the truth about the presence of God in your life. A clear conscience doesn't mean the pride of perfection. People aren't perfect. 
Some people are so consumed by what other people think about their imperfections that they live under this awful yoke of legalism. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's only one way for you to have a good conscience. You have to be willing to communicate in your heart and in your soul when other people ask the question about the reality of who Jesus is in your life. It doesn't have to be a lengthy response, but it must include the reality that I believe that there is a Jesus who forgives sins, who reconciles sinners to God, and I want to be included in that number, knowing that Jesus himself said, if I confess Jesus before human beings, then, then he will confess me before his Father in heaven. And so that's why it says in verse 17, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. So how are we to confront suffering in our lives? Look what Peter is doing. He's giving you a way to think about it. Remember, remember that suffering is inevitable. And so he says, look, here's how you're to confront suffering. In verse 14, be bold. In verse 15, believe. In verse 16, be blameless. Now he adds something else. Make sure your behavior reflects a willingness to do what's right even now, and this, the principle is simple, unjust suffering is always better than deserved punishment. Unjust suffering is always better than deserved punishment. So how is it better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil? The quick answer is found in verse 18, which we're going to look at even more the next time we meet. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Here's his argument. Listen, if anyone ever suffered unjustly, it was Jesus. But his unjust suffering had a rhyme and a reason to it. It was to bring you to God. And then your response might be, but what's the rhyme and reason to my suffering? Peter makes the argument that believers ought to patiently endure suffering with the right attitude for the purpose of providing a powerful testimony to a watching world. Now, do you all of a sudden begin to see what we've already said? Salvation for a watching world. Submission for a watching world. Suffering for a watching world. By the way, my own personal suffering falls into two broad categories. The consequences for having done evil and the consequences for having done good. Hey, and if I suffer for having done what's evil, how does that become a compelling reason for people to come to Christ? It isn't. We can't do a whole lot about the sins of our youth or the wicked conduct of our past. We can confess our sins. We can rest in the promise that we're new creations in Christ. We can seek forgiveness from those we've wronged. We can make restitution whenever possible. But we purpose in our heart to conduct ourselves in such a way that we are consistent as new creations in Christ. And Peter's already listed one reason to confound our enemies. That is, 
when they defame you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that they falsely accuse your conduct, your lifestyle, and confront our enemies. That is, generate a sense of shame that the accuser will feel ashamed. You know, it's very, very hard to criticize a person who devotes their whole life to ministering to the poor. Say what you will about Mother Teresa. I never heard a single person say, I think she's in it for the money. So why is it God's will sometimes for us to suffer for doing what's right? I'm not wise enough to answer that question. And the reason why I am not wise enough to answer that question is because I don't know everything that God knows. There could be lots of reasons. Job experienced catastrophic loss. He was a righteous man. He turned from evil. He prayed and cared for his family. He walked with God. He had a reputation even in heaven for integrity. But in a moment, he lost flocks and herds and servants and his own children and finally his health. And you may think that the book of Job is a Hebrew fairy tale. But it isn't. It's the story of a real person who persevered and endured under immense suffering. James wrote in James chapter 5 verse 11, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful, unquote. That's James chapter 5 verse 11. James writes that if the only lesson we learn from the book of Job is that God is full of compassion and full of mercy, that's good enough. Perhaps in some way God's called you to reflect the ministry of Job. It's a rare calling, but it's one filled with also rare opportunities to testify of God's compassion and God's control. Let me help you with just one last thing. Have you ever put together a reasonable and intelligent explanation for the hope that's within your heart. Because it's one thing to come up with an intelligent and reasonable explanation when people are smiling and when people are friendly, when there's an open atmosphere of love and acceptance and it's very, very different when the pressure's on. But make no mistake about it. If you are unwilling or unable to give a reasonable and intelligent explanation for the hope that's inside of your heart when the pressure's off, almost certainly you won't be able to do it when the pressure's on. Unless you do what Peter's asked you to do. Be blessed. Be brave. Be bold. 
and tell them the truth. There's a God in heaven. He saves sinners. He forgives sinners. He fills sinners' hearts with hope. The hope, not that they're going to go to hell, but that they're going to go to heaven. And what's the reasonable explanation? How is it even possible that by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that there is a transference from guilt to innocence, from blame to forgiveness, from hell to heaven? How does that happen? Are you able to tell them the answer? I hope so. And if you're not, let me help you. It really is that simple. It's saying the most basic and simple thing. Jesus Christ came to the earth and lived the perfect life that I could never live. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead for my justification. He ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Pretty simple. But nothing is more important. Nothing is more important than the opportunity that God gives to you to tell people the truth about your Savior. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be ready with an answer. Lord, clearly we don't know every answer to every question. But Lord, even if the answer is, I don't know, but I'll keep looking. Lord, let's not give up what we know for what we don't know. Let's not abandon the search simply because we don't have every answer to every question. But that we have the best answer to the best question. What must I do to be saved? How can I experience forgiveness of sins? How can I have the emptiness inside of me filled with something other than darkness and dread? How can I know Jesus? Lord, we know the answer. It's to repent of our sin and our unbelief. It's to embrace the truth that Jesus Christ loves us and died for us. And that if we'll receive him into our heart, if we will abandon our sin and our unbelief and embrace him as Lord and Savior, our lives can be different. And our future can be changed. And Lord, I pray for that person who wants to pray that prayer. Lord, I pray that even now in their heart, they would cry out to you and say, Heavenly Father... I want to know Jesus. I want to experience forgiveness of sin. I want to have the hope of eternal life. I want to know and believe that even somebody like me can have their sins forgiven. Even somebody like me can find a place and a future in heaven with you. In Jesus' name, amen.